My name is Chris McGuffey, and I'm the uh, fairly new uh, pastor of outreach here at uh, Grace Bible Church. Excited to be here with you this morning. And I want to start by asking a question. When was the last time that you felt really inadequate? Maybe for some of you it hasn't been that long. <laughs> now I realize that in this, uh, in this auditorium there's probably two different kinds of people at least. First, there are those that feel inadequate quite often. And, and to be you know, honest, that's not really that much fun. Uh, but there is, um, uh, in the midst of that, uh, one good thing, and that is that there's a little bit of safety. Because when sometimes we feel inadequate, we don't run off to do crazy things that we ought not do. If you know me very well, you would probably understand that I fit into a second group. And that is the one that often feels like they're adequate to do most things. And there's no, there's, there's no good necessarily in the midst of that. But for some reason, and I don't know why, maybe it's a mix of, uh, of genetic influence, maybe it's part of my personality. I'm sure that in part it has to do with a little bit of arrogance, but I don't always use my past history as a way to properly gauge the things that I feel like I can accomplish. This can get me into some pretty tight spots. You can imagine if you're a guy around the house, the things that you might venture into uh, as you decide to fix, repair, restore, or create, only based on the fact that, that it's interesting, not on the fact that you actually have the capabilities to do it. Sometimes courage and stupidity can only be fleshed out in the outcome. The problem with a personality like mine is that I can get on a roll just, you know, with just enough successes that I forego the old adage of looking before leaping. But in the midst of that, God always wants to teach people like me about faithfulness to Him, building a little bit of character, building trust. Unfortunately, it's usually on the way down. While working with college students overseas for many years, I would often hear people uh, tell these stories and they would always culminate with the idea of God overcoming these great inadequacies in life. And whether it was about how maybe their financial support was raised or maybe they had the opportunity for the first time to lead somebody in their understanding of God's grace, it always had to do with God's power overcoming their inadequacies. But one phrase that some people would use never really quite stuck with me in the right way. It went something like this. They would tell some great story about how God had overcome their inadequacies, and in the very moment that they thought that all was lost, God showed up. That God showed up. Now, I'm not one to really mince about words, little things that we use, but when we say that God showed up, it kind of reinforces some things that aren't really true in our life. So what does it look like when we say that God showed up? First off, I think that it demeans the work of God in preparation. When we say God showed up, we kind of assume that God wasn't there to begin with, right? But God has been in the midst of our lives in preparation. It's kind of like, you know, God was surprised, you know, and, and he looks at us and he say, oh my, how did you get yourself into that situation? Okay. Oh, well, then God showed up. The second thing it does is it assumes 
that we were uh, busy, that God was busy somewhere else. You know, God responds to us, hey, I'm sorry, I got here really as fast as I could. Okay? And third, it decries the fact that God is always near, that He's always working, that He's always providing according to His plan. Now, we started a uh, series last week called Face to Face, in which we'll look at different biblical theophanies, really the biblical understanding of how God shows up. Okay? And so today we're going to talk about maybe one of the more familiar stories in this category, and that is Moses and the burning bush. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, why don't you open up to Exodus 3, and I'll fill in a little details of what has happened up to this point. Moses is a character that stands very tall in biblical history. As a matter of fact, he is mentioned even in the New Testament about 80 times. He even appears on the Mount of Transfiguration as, as he's talking with Jesus. This is what I call a mosophony. Okay, I just made that up. Okay? But the passage that we're looking at this morning will take us all the way back to kind of the beginning of his story and God's call on his life. The Pharaoh of Genesis, who was kind to Joseph, has died and other Pharaohs have taken his place. The number of Hebrews has begun to grow and grow, and this is making uh, the Egyptians a little bit scared. And so they put them, they were subjected to slavery, and the Pharaohs had moved them out to kind of keep them disempowered. Remember, in less than 400 years, 70 people had gone into Egypt but now their numbers had swelled to somewhere around 2 million. As a further step, the pharaohs also started putting the male Hebrew children to death because he wanted to make sure, one, not only to limit the number of births that were possible, but also uh, that the number of able fighting men was limited. And it was from these well-known circumstances that Moses' life, he was born, he was saved from the river, by Pharaoh's daughter, and he went in to live in Pharaoh's house. About the time that Moses was 40 years old, he became more aware uh, of his Jewish background. He killed a soldier who was uh, not being very kind to an old Jewish woman, and he fled into the wilderness of Midian, where he would marry and try to put Egypt far, far behind him. I would summarize it this way. That after 400 years and their current slavery and the disappearance of Moses, the Hebrews had to believe that God had left them. After killing a man and fleeing into the wilderness and spending 40 years as a shepherd, Moses had to believe that God had left him. There's no doubt in my mind that the Hebrews had been counting on Moses early in their years to rescue them from their current plight in Egypt. But those dreams died a very slow and painful death as Moses fled into the wilderness. And now we're left understanding that both Moses and the Hebrews are wondering what in the world is going to happen next. I would put it this way, that the Hebrews were left to make bricks, and Moses left his high and lofty position of leadership to lead sheep both wondering, where was God? Though God's requisition of Moses will start in chapter 3, God's disposition 
is explained in the verses that appeared just before that. So let's go back into chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and read a little bit. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Israel had been groaning because of their slavery, and they cried out to God for help. And I I don't really know what the difference was, whether or not these were groans of complaint, or if these were true prayers before the Lord. I'm sure that in the midst of Israel, in the midst of the Hebrew people, that there were quite a bit of both. God remembered, although I think He never had forgotten, the promise that He had made to the Hebrew people regarding Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. I think that both the Hebrews and Moses maybe misunderstood what God was doing, especially what He was trying to do within their history as they lived in Egypt. God had put them into a very safe place as He was trying to grow them into a nation. He had shielded them from being assimilated with other nations outside of uh, the, the dangers of those who were being fortified in Canaan. He was creating within them an identity that would become vitally important for their next task at hand. He would answer. They would be able to see his miraculous salvation. And they could, they could go out and understand that God had answered their prayers. God wanted both the Hebrews in general and Moses in particular to know that he was their God who protected them, and who provided for them. Now, before we move into Moses' call, I think it's probably wise to consult maybe the the two most well-known and authoritative commentaries uh, on Moses' life. First, we have the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, movie back in the 1950s, won six awards, one of which was an Oscar, had seven other nominations. Who was Moses? Charlton Heston went on to star in other great epic dramas like Soylent Green, for those of you that were old enough to remember. Okay? We also have The Prince of Egypt, also six awards, also one Oscar, nominated for 19 other awards. It's a little bit trickier. Who was the voice of Moses? Val Kilmer. How in the world, how in the world did Val Kilmer nail this role? He goes from Iceman and Top Gun to the leader of the Hebrews. What would it have looked like if he stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and then chomped his teeth? You guys remember that scene? Always thought that was awesome. Now, I have to confess a little bit this morning. Not this time, but one other time I was preparing to teach on the life of Moses and I was contemplating just the thoughts of, you know, the, the story, the facts that I knew. And I was thinking, how cool is it that Moses, as he was out seeking that lost sheep, that that's when he came upon the burning bush. That if he hadn't cared so much for his sheep, that he would have never gone out and found the burning bush. And I went back and I started reading through my Bible and I realized that part of the story is not in there at all. That's from the Prince of Egypt. <laughs> 
It's like, shoot, that would have been a really good illustration. These are very, very strong commentaries on the book of Exodus and the life of Moses. So this morning, let's see if we can kind of stay focused in the pertinent facts in Exodus chapter 3. Read with me as we go through here. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses. I can't do Charlton Heston, you know, his response to that, or God's, God's voice. And he said, here am I. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Here's what I think happened. Basically is that that Moses stumbled onto God's property. See, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are in the same place, maybe even referring to the very same mountain. So Moses would not only see the burning bush at this time, but a few years later he would actually come back and stand before God in this very place to receive the law. So I think in some ways the burning bush that we find in Exodus chapter 3 is really just a warm-up for the Sinai setting that we will find in Exodus chapter 19. In chapter 3, we find Moses standing before God as God calls him personally to what he wants them to do. And in Exodus chapter 19, Moses stands before God and it's through Moses that God gives the nation of Israel a national calling to accomplish what he wants them to do. At this time, Moses begins to remind, uh, God begins to remind Moses of the, uh, the Hebrews' plight. And I, I think that Moses had to be thinking, you know, when he, when he realizes that this bush that's burning but not being consumed is actually God, what would you think? I would think, oh my, God has finally come to judge me. He has found me in the wilderness. And I think that Moses was really surprised that through his history of inadequacy and failure, that God still had a plan for his life. It's funny how in the next few verses, verse 7 through 9, God begins to relate to Moses a little bit about what's been happening in Egypt since he's been gone. And I think that that uh, Moses tracks with him really good because everything is really referring to what God has accomplished. He said, I will, I know, I have, I shall. Okay, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I, have, I know their suffering. I have come to deliver them out of Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. And I have seen their oppression. And I think Moses all the time is saying, yes, yes, Lord, I understand. But then what happens in verse 10 is that God transitions from saying, I did, I will, I shall, talking about himself. And he says, and Moses 
I will send you. At this point, I think Moses is really paying attention. <laughs> He's like, say, say what? <laughs> what was that last part? Moses, I will send you. I think that this is very much like us. I think that what we love to do is to sit in church and we listen and we soak in all of the wonderful things that God has done. God has broken into the world and he sent his son and he's relating uh, to the people that he loves and he has adopted as his sons. And we're thinking, go God. He said, I'm going to come again and I'm going to bring you into a place that I have promised. It is going to be a, a place where we will eternally stand before God and worship him. And we say, go God. But we forget that in the middle, there's a place where God says, and I will send you. And we say, say what? What was that last part? That I will send you. In Moses' mind, 40 years of dwelling on his failures had not been a very good preparation for the task that God was calling him to. That's in Moses' mind. But in reality, he had no way of knowing that the last 40 years of his life were God's plan of preparation for Moses to do exactly what God wanted him to do, to accomplish his biggest plans yet in biblical history. So over the next two chapters, as God clarifies what he wants to do, uh, what he wants Moses to do, Moses gives four different excuses. And unfortunately, they sound pretty familiar to me. The first thing he does is Moses says, I'm unimportant. You know, remember, God says, I'm going to send you. And he's like, who am I? What are you doing? I'm a, I'm a shepherd. You know, the, the Egyptians don't even like sheep. They don't like shepherds. I got this long, white beard. You know, it was, it was kind of darker in the beginning of the movie, but now it's white. You know, I've seen the bush. And he said, guys, I'm going to send you. It's like, who am I? What are, what are you thinking? God, are you crazy? And God responds, don't worry about it. I am the one who is present. The second thing that Moses says is that I'm uninformed. So I don't even know what to say. What am I going to tell them? What am I going to tell these people that they would believe what I say? And God's response is, don't worry about knowing what you're going to say. This is about my promise. It's about revealing my promise to my people. He also says, but God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unqualified. You know, I'm not that great of a speaker. I don't know if you realize that. You know, why on earth would you choose me? God says, don't worry about it. I'm powerful. And finally, we get to the heart of the issue. And Moses says, I'm unwilling. He said, Lord, send somebody else. And now God is perturbed. He wasn't angry at the first three. You know, I think that the questions that Moses is asking are not crazy questions. If God was going to tell me to go do something like this, I would probably want to backfill a little bit of information. Okay, who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? How are they going to believe me? But only when we turn to God and say, I'm unwilling, does God become angry. Moses asks, who am I that I should lead the people out of Egypt? 
And we think about that question that Moses asked, and I think oftentimes we look back into the history and we know how the story ends. We know that Moses goes back, a lot of plagues, people come out, they cross the river, they eventually get over into the promised land, the credits roll, you know, nice music in the end, right? But I think for Moses, think about how he heard what God was asking him to do. He had spent 40 years in failure and humiliation. How in the world could God be calling him to be the leader of his people? The key answer, of course, is that it had very little to do with Moses. Moses is asking, who am I? And I think God's chuckling in the back of his mind. He's like, who are you? Who am I? I know you. I made you. You want to tell me about your limitations? I created your limitations. You think that they stand in the way? I say it's the only way that you can trust me. You are the person for the job because I've named you as the person for the job. It doesn't begin or end with Moses' name. It begins and ends with God's name. As God reveals to him who he is, he says, I am. Who should I say that sent me? I am. Not just I am, I was, I am, I will be, but I am. I'm in charge here. I know what's happening. I know what will happen. I know the beginning and the end. I know your limitations. And I'm here to walk you through those. I think that Moses more quickly began to understand what was happening because he was standing in the presence of God. He was able to experience the presence of God. But then he began to think about the situation in Egypt, and he needed more than that. He needed to be able to explain to a group of people whose experience of God was a lack of experience with God, at least in their estimation. It was a group of people that felt abandoned. They needed a name that described God, not just a name that identified God. Not the God of unfulfilled promises from their expectations, but the God of unending presence who stands before them. So God said, tell them I am has sent you, and that will be enough. It's so easy, I think, it's so easy for us as we read through this great biblical story to think, wow, this is, Moses' calling is so unique. Not only unique in history, but I'm not really sure how it applies to my life today. However, I think what it does is it begins to illustrate for us what our, our response should be as we stand in the presence of God. And I think that's something that each of us can apply to our lives. Every part of this story as it moves on from Moses' call, even from his birth, all the way through the victory that they see in entering the promised land, every part has pain, every part has preparation, every part has fear, and some parts have courage. We have a God who sees, the verse said in uh, 2.25. We have a God who knows. And the rest of the story tells us that we have a God who acts. In what He sees and what He knows, we have a God who acts. The question is, will we have the faith, in light of all of our objections, to first worship Him and then to walk according to that faith? Our applications, 
for the presence of God in our lives should be based on three truths. First truth is this. Like I said, God sees. He is an all-powerful God. He never sleeps. He doesn't miss any detail about your life. And I think for some people, this is a disturbing fact. Because some people have a worldview that conjures images of God that He has a predetermined role in their life to give them comfort and ease or excitement or fun. But instead, God works through every circumstance to offer you the opportunity to trust Him for a life that He has planned, not for a life that you want. And His plan for our life is even better. One challenge of our faith in God is to decide who knows best, me or Him. Who knows best about my life, me or Him? I can sit and I can think about, you know, and get stuck in all my inadequacies. I can rush out in what I think are my strengths and I can blow my life to pieces. But who am I going to trust in? Who knows best, God or me? Our application is to rest in Him. To rest in the fact that God knows the details about our life. And to never think that we're being ignored. The second truth that we need to understand is that God knows. He is a God who has experienced pain. He knows your limitations. Yet He has called you to obedience. God understands what He's asked you to do, and He also knows that apart from Him, it's an impossible task. In fact, if what God had called you to do was easy, you would try to do it without Him. That's what we all would do. He knows the big rocks that block your path. He knows the things that slow you down. And He knows the relationships that, makes, that make things difficult. Another challenge of our faith in God is to decide what to do. Are we going to settle for our own lives? Are we going to serve God in the faith and knowing that He has what's better, something better in mind? Our application is to respond to Him. To respond to what God is calling us to do. To respond to the little things in our lives that the Spirit nudges us to do. To share the, the message of grace with those that we live near, those that we work with, those that we study with, to act in integrity in our business, to be kind to our wives, that we respond to Him in the things that He's asked us to do. Have you ever thought about all the people in this story that God asked to respond? Sure, we're familiar with the main character of the story that that Moses is standing before the burning bush and there's complications there and, and we know that God is asking Moses to accomplish a few things and his excuses. But what about the rest of the people that you find in chapter 3 and 4? The other people that God is asking to respond in kind. There was also Moses' wife, Zipporah. She had to trust that her husband wasn't off as rockers trying to move them from this free-living land in Midian and to walk towards the oppression of the pharaohs in Egypt. Aaron, Moses' brother, long since estranged, God told him, Aaron, walk away from the only life that you've ever known as a slave in Egypt 
and go and find your brother in the wilderness. The Hebrew people had to trust a man who had allowed their slavery for the last 40 years and ran away in fear that God would give him the courage to demand their release before an all-powerful Pharaoh. And even Pharaoh was presented with a deal. He could obey God, the God of Israel, and keep his son, or he could stand in defiance and lose it all. The third truth that we need to understand is that God acts. He is a God who moves. He executes His plans. Yet He desires your participation. While God allows for and maybe even plans for our inadequacies in our lives, He has also given us the Holy Spirit that lives within us to empower us to accomplish the things to which He has called us. A third challenge of our faith is in God is to decide who has the answers, the world or the Word. And our application is to trust in Him. When you think about trusting God, do you sometimes feel unimportant? It's okay. God is present in our lives. When you think about trusting God, do you feel uninformed? It's okay. That God acts according to His promises. He gives us the words to say. Sometimes do you feel unqualified? The scary fact is, it's true. You are. By yourself, you are unqualified to accomplish the things that God wants you to do. But with God, with His Spirit that lives within you, you are overqualified to accomplish the very things that God is asking you to do. Are you unwilling? Well, see, now you're in trouble. Now you're in trouble. Instead, allow the presence of God to make you willing. We don't need to wait for some type of theophany in our lives. God sent His Son to appear to us in a way that we could understand. We can approach Him. We can spend time with Him. We can see what He's asking us to do. And we know that He will always go with us. Let me pray. Father, maybe not such an epic tale in our lives that Cecil B. DeMille or others will come and make a movie to tell our story. But God, you have entered into our lives at just the moment that we have needed you. You have saved us. As we have talked about this morning, you have adopted us. You have made us one of your children. And even far beyond that, you have asked us to participate in what you're doing with the message of salvation to those who who don't know. Father, you have planted us in our jobs, in our school. We think sometimes that we have done this all on our own, but Lord, you have helped to orchestrate these details. Lord, we're, we're scared. We don't know who we are sometimes. We don't know what to say sometimes. We don't know if we have the power to accomplish it. But Lord, this morning as we leave this place, help us not to suffer from being unwilling. Lord, help us to relinquish our fears 
and to come to you humbly and trusting you that you're a God who, who sees, you're a God who knows, and that you're a God who acts on our behalf. We pray that we'd bring you all the glory and honor this week that you deserve. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.